Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another good morning. Lord, we thank you for the freedom to worship, Lord. We thank you for the freedom uh, spiritually to come before you with songs and praise and that you receive that and receive us, Lord. And we also thank you for the freedom that we experience in this country and in this community to be able to gather. And Lord, we are grateful. And Lord, as we continue to look at your story and at scripture, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to be speaking to each one of us, Lord, um, yeah, individually and just in, in wonderful ways. And we thank you that, that your truth reigns supreme. In your name, amen. Um, so something uh, happened um, this past week that actually got me uh, thinking and reflecting. So prior to this, we were doing a sermon series um, on uh, the male and the female brain and based off Genesis um, 1 where it talked about male and female he created them, and we were un, un, uh, unpacking that a little bit, and um, and I realized that there were a couple things that that I didn't get a chance to to wrap up and say in conclusion of that. So this morning, I'm actually going to wrap up that sermon series with just one or two quick ideas, uh, and then we're going to carry on in in Luke. But just kind of as a reminder, we're so we're on that that sermon series, male and female, he created them, and. Um, I mean, obviously, physically, we're, we're built differently, but even just w- within the brains, um, built differently, and, and how each kind of have predictable strengths and weaknesses, and, um, you know, a, a couple of the resources I had were fascinating. It was, it was kind of hard, because part of me just wanted to stand up and just give a one-hour book report, and be like, and then there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this, but that would have been boring, and you can read the book for yourself, but... Um, well, not boring, actually, it would have been fascinating, but anyways, um, so just you know, that, that we were on that, that, that sermon series, and, you know, just an awareness that because we are created so differently, that will inevitably create frustrations at times, but yet God did that because he actually wanted to create really great, uh, great team w- within marriage, um, but so, um, wanted to cover this, um, coming out of Titus 2, 3, uh, let me, uh, share this, uh, verse with you, um, older women, Likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And here's the key phrase. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So here's what I want to emphasize from that that I think is so important. So you're born male or female, but godly masculinity and godly femininity is something you have to learn. It is not natural. It's not going to come to you naturally. Um, It's not something that you just slide into. Godly masculinity, godly femininity, is something that that you have to learn. Being a good Christian man, being a good Christian woman, um, it's it's just, it doesn't come naturally. You you have to, to learn it. And Paul here is instructing that those who are older and those who are good at it are to instruct the younger on how to do it well. My desire, one of, one of the several desires in that sermon series is for you guys to live in freedom of how God made you, right? Gentlemen, act like men, grow into godly masculinity. Ladies, act like women, grow into godly femininity. 
You'll also note, though, that in that sermon series, we never actually defined godly masculinity or godly femininity. We didn't have the time. It was outside the scope of what we were going after. I'm, I'm just trusting you to, to go figure that out on your own. Lots of books, podcasts, whatever, right? Like, there's lots and lots of information. So we never actually defined those terms because I'm, I'm entrusting you to, to learn some of that, that on your own. But I, I think we can agree, though, just with the general idea or concept of godly masculinity being a good thing, godly femininity being a, a good thing. Um, and, and it is. It's fascinating how science has progressed, how we can see some of those differences, not just physically, but, but in the mind as well, too. Here's the other thing, too, just kind of a, as a reminder, that the pressures and the bumps and the trials and the hurdles of life will likely affect you differently. Some trials will naturally be easier for women. Some trials will naturally be easier for men. And to be okay with that. And to not slide into uh, jealousy or bitterness that your spouse has strengths or weaknesses that you don't have. Because the temptation is going to be, you know, like, well, why can't she just dot, dot, dot? Or why can't he just dot, dot, dot? And the answer is because you're built different. That's why. Right? The brain is gender-specific. It is not gender-neutral. Learning to, to live, um, live out that well, godly masculinity, godly femininity, requires that we learn it from others. Okay. We're done with that one now. Sermon series. Just wanted to end on that point. Um, so we're uh, in a sermon series on Luke. Uh, Luke's account of Jesus. Uh, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Luke wrote one of those Gospels. He's the only Gentile to write an account on the life of Jesus. His account is the longest. Uh, Luke was very smart. He was very detailed. He wrote well. He had great grammar. Good for him. Um, he really emphasized the humanity of Jesus, and he really emphasized uh, Jesus' love for the outcast and the underdog and the poor and, and the oppressed. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus', uh, Jesus um, uh, what happens in Luke chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 16. We'll, we'll get, that, uh, get to that in just a minute. He's in his hometown and, and kind of some stuff that transpires um, in, in that. As a little bit of a, a background, and we've talked about this before, but um, this, it, I, I find so much correlation in, in here. Um, I think it was Friedman wrote a, a book on family systems and kind of a fascinating um, insight or approach to just how we as humans interact with, with one another. Um, one of the, the things that he talks about is how family units will create an equilibrium, right? So a family unit can be an actual biological family, it can be a group of friends, it can be a church community, it can be a broader community, that kind of thing, right? So you have family, you have family units. Within that family unit, an equilibrium will eventually get established where kind of everyone learns their place and they learn how to interact with one another, right? Which is, okay, that's fine. The, I don't know if you would call it fascinating or if you would call it problematic, but what happens is that when one person changes or wants to change or attempts to change, it actually disrupts the entire equilibrium and actually forces all of the other people in that family unit to relearn how to interact with one another. And so even though they all love one another, they will actually subconsciously push that person into who they were because even if it was dysfunctional, they knew how to interact, right? So kind of a, a, an example, all right? 
Um, hypothetical, um, none of you are in mind, okay? This is all hypothetical. Um, let's say that you have, you know, a, a family unit, everyone's living in close proximity, and, you know, you've got grandparents, parents, and kids, okay? That's, that's our, for our example, kind of our, our family unit here. And again, hypothetical, let's say that within that, the mom and her dad don't get along and haven't gotten along for years, right? So mom and dad just kind of, mom and her dad um, have a strained relationship. They argue and fight, been going on for years, okay? So mom and grandpa have an argument. Well, mom is grumpy, and then so she treats her husband and her children poorly, and then grandpa goes home, and he argues with his wife, and this is just kind of what happens. Well, then one day something happens. I don't know. Someone finds Jesus. The two of them resolve and it's all good, right? Like mom and her dad, mom and grandpa, are now getting along great. They resolve their differences all as well. Mom is nicer to her husband. Mom is nicer to her, her kids. And grandpa is nice to his wife. The problem is that no one's buying it. That the kids are now suspicious of, like, nice mom. And so they act out. Uh, Dad just kind of keeps waiting for his wife to explode again. Grandma is bitter from years of a tense marriage, and she figures it's now time to punish Grandpa for what he put her through all this time. It was dysfunctional when Mom and Grandpa would fight, but everyone knew their place in that dysfunction, and they knew how to interact. And now that things are changed and actually more peaceful, they don't know how to interact anymore. Um, so I used to work with short-term missions. We talked about this all the time. Because what would happen um, in, in that environment or, or another environment and just something that, that they had to be aware of. And I mean, one kid came back and was like, that completely happened to my brother. And then he unpacked the story. What happened for his brother, his brother growing up, bit of a wild child, act, act out, just problematic, irresponsible. He goes away. He has this life changing transformation he comes back and like he's responsible and he's tithing and he's doing you know devotions on a regular basis and all this other kind of thing and you would expect the family that loves him to be thrilled and they were at first but eventually what he starts to hear is like well this isn't the real you i i grew up with you when like i know the real you when are you going to get back to normal Right? Your friends will be like, hey, like, let's go party like we used to. And so he, he, you know, you can keep that path for a little while, but eventually after months of pressure, like you make one small mistake and then everyone says, see, I told you he was faking the whole time. Right? And what's disheartening is that the only way to actually maintain that change for the long term, if you're the person wanting to change in that family unit, is you do one of two things. You either get very strong outside support, or you move away. And you can probably think of some examples where someone changed, or just the family unit wasn't good, and so they moved away. And sometimes they just moved away as far as they could. If you want to become a different person, or even a better person... It, it, it's sad, but oftentimes the family unit will be some of the last people to accept that. Luke 4, uh, starting in verse 16. I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll break it down kind of piece by piece. Um, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, okay, hometown. 
And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So Jesus goes to church regularly, which is fascinating because if there's anyone who would have, you know, grounds to say, I'm frustrated with the local church. It's not the way it should be, right? Like, I think that would probably be Jesus, but he still went to church every week. So there's a sermon in that one, but we're not going to cover it today. So he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He rolled the scroll and found in the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon uh, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. We were talking about that in Sunday school, like that last sentence. Like, I feel like you could unpack a lot more. Like when a mob is about to throw you off a cliff and then he just walks through them. Like, I'd like some explanation on what exactly what happened there. Back then, um, they would do a church service, much like we would do, right? Someone uh, reads a prayer. Someone, uh, uh, sometimes they would uh, recite a common confession of faith. Someone reads from Scripture, and then someone gives a lesson. Oftentimes, these synagogues did, did not have, like, a, a full-time paid staff. So, I mean, this was all volunteer, just kind of everyone in the community, uh, you, know, you know, participating. Maybe a traveling priest or rabbi is coming through. He says something. Uh, this is Jesus' hometown. He is known, um, you know, uh, on the story about when Jesus was 13. Like, I mean, you know, adults considered Jesus a smart kid, understood scripture well, uh, could give a good devotional, a good sermon. Um, there's actually some other clues in Matthew and Mark that suggest that Jesus had actually been in Nazareth for about a year uh, before this all happened. So he's got a really good reputation. Um, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, but then he also pulls a line from from elsewhere. Uh, This is Isaiah uh, 61. This is what he reads. Um, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, uh, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But then he also adds... um, to release the oppressed. He's pulling that from Isaiah 58, verse 6. And then he stops mid-sentence. 
Like, he actually doesn't finish out the prophecy. He stops mid-sentence, rolls up the scroll, sits down, and then everyone's staring at him. And kind of the way that, that, it's, that it's worded, like, it kind of gives you this vibe that there's like a, a tense, like, anticipation moment where everyone is staring at Jesus, like, wondering what's going to happen next. Um, they, and, you know, they, they knew that, that that passage was in reference to the coming Messiah, like, that, that was common. And then Jesus says it, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. A couple things to, to pull out of that. Um, I told you that Jesus stops mid-sentence. The next line in Isaiah is, is actually this. The next line reads, The day of vengeance of our God. Right? The day of vengeance was, was not fulfilled on Jesus' first visit. Okay? Um, so he doesn't read that line. He, he stops before he gets that. The day of vengeance has not yet come. That comes later with Jesus' second coming. Last picture we have of Jesus in Scripture is actually in the book of Revelation. He is coming back to earth, white war horse. He's got a cloak that's been dipped in blood or uh, splattered with blood, depending on, on translation. Double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His church is with him, all dressed in white, and he comes to judge the nations. Okay, so that's the day of vengeance, right? That's second coming. And, and again, like, there, there's a lot that, that we could have unpack on this. But the fullness of God's justice has not yet been poured out. That comes later. You, you could say, really, I, I think, or I think a good way to describe it, is that we live in the era of second chances. Spiritually, we live in the era of second chances, right? Because we all know, I mean, even if, like, like Putin is kind of our current worldwide villain, right? If Putin were to ask God for forgiveness, God would forgive that man. There would still be earthly consequences, but before God, he would stand clean and righteous, and that's a pretty wild thing. The fact that we live in the era of, of second chances is great news for the sinner. That is fantastic news for the sinner. It is painful news to the one who has been hurt. Because the justice you desire and the healing you crave is not going to come fully until Jesus comes a second time. And so we continue to live life with pain while the person who hurt us gets a second chance before God. Great news for the sinner. Hard news for the one who's been hurt. But here's what Jesus does fulfill. Good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Sight for the blind. Liberty for those who are oppressed. Year of the Lord's favor. Some translations will have year of jubilee. A year of jubilee, that's described in Leviticus 25. So every 50 years, Israel was supposed to do kind of this economic reset. Um, if there were debts, they were canceled. Any land that you bought from someone was returned to the original owner, whoever that family or whoever that owner was 50 years ago. Um, slaves were released. And it really kind of kept everything kind of an economic equilibrium, sort of a strong middle class. You don't have the development of super rich or, or super poor. Just everything is reset, right? So for those hearing this, basically what they hear is freedom, right? That's going to be their big takeaway when, when they hear a year of jubilee, year of the Lord's favor is freedom. A common question in all of this is, 
is are those literal or are those figurative, right? Like, are we talking about the physically blind will now see, or are we talking the spiritually blind will now see? And the answer is, well, both. The spiritual is guaranteed. The physical, it's kind of hit or miss, but it does happen. Um, anyone, anyone who accepts Christ goes from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Some have gone from a physical blindness to a physical sight. Some have been miraculously healed, but not all, right? Anyone who accepts Christ goes from spiritual slavery to spiritual freedom. Some have gone from a physical slavery to a, a, a physical freedom, but not all. Every, it, it's good to just revisit every so often, right? Like, why did Jesus come? Like, what was his agenda? If, if you survey the, the verses on, like, like, what was the primary G- reason why Jesus came? Overwhelmingly spiritual salvation, right? Like, there's all these awesome things that, that flow out of the gospel. But what was the primary reason why Jesus came? was spiritual salvation, to create opportunity, free gift, to those who will accept it, to be reconciled to God, to have sins forgiven, to have sins nailed on the cross with Christ, and receive or to wear his, his perfect righteousness. Now there's a fascinating shift that's about to happen, and you guys have probably seen it already. Uh, verse 22, all spoke well of him, marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And it appears to be that, that that's a positive statement as well too, right? Like people are loving Jesus. Like they think that this guy is just the best, right? Hometown hero, spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words flowing out of his mouth, right? Joseph town, hometown kid, like they're loving this, loving this, loving this, okay? But then watch what happens next. And how quickly they turn and the reason why they turn on Jesus. Verse 23. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician heal yourself. Uh, What we have heard you do in Capernaum do here in your hometown. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Okay, now in this next section, he's going to reference two stories from the Old Testament. One from Elijah, one from Elisha. Okay, Uh, verse 25. But in truth I tell you. Story one, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years, six months, great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of uh, Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Second story, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, they drove him out of town, brought him to the, the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff, but he passed through their midst, he went away. Okay. So story one, Elijah. Um, Elijah had prayed that it would not rain for three years. It hadn't rained. There's famine. People are starving. Rough times. And God says Elijah to this widow named Zarephath, so that's in 1 Kings uh, 17, when he finds her, she's collecting sticks because she's going to make the last meal out of the remnants um, and, you know, so that her and her son can have their last meal and die. Uh, 1 Kings 17. Oh, and then, but then God sends Elijah to her and basically says, if you'll make me your last meal, then you'll have all you need. Uh, 1 Kings 17, uh, 14. 
The jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She went, she did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken by Elijah. So here's the problem, is that she's not Jewish. Right? She's not an Israelite, she's a Gentile. Then Jesus tells this other story about Naaman the Syrian, 2 Kings 5. Um, this time it's with Elisha. Uh, Naaman's a military commander. He had really bad leprosy. Elisha tells him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. Kind of some drama around that, but he does it. He's miraculously cur- cured. Again, not a Jew. Gentile. Jesus tells these two stories. And suddenly Jesus goes from, you know, golden boy from hometown to like public enemy number one. They drive him to the edge of town to kill him. Jesus told two stories where God's love and grace were extended to the rest of the world, not just the Jews, and they lost their minds. Um, And in fact, in those stories, actually God's love actually bypasses the Israelites and goes to the rest of the world. Now, I mean, you, you got to remember, like, Israel's an occupied country. The Romans in, were in charge. They were brutal. They were mean. They would crucify people all the time. Dictators, tyrants, justice, like, not really a thing. And Israel, I mean, they've got this whole history of just centuries of being slaves and captives and beat up and, and kicked around. So from a human perspective, and I emphasize human, from a human perspective, like you can understand why they would be a little bit bitter and would hate the world and would kind of have this deep desire to be freed and raised up in victors and, and all of that other kind of stuff. But then Jesus comes along and, and basically says, God's love is going to extend to you and to those who mistreated you. And in fact, here are two stories where God actually chose others over you. And, and they couldn't handle it. A lesson from Jesus and a lesson from humanity. In this, we, I think we really see the dark side of humanity. We see how they were filled with rage. Um, and this level of, like, this is not okay. Like, this, this, this level of hate. I mean, like, what kind of deep-seated racism does a community have to have where they literally, in a few moments, go from, we love this guy, to let's kill him. Like, what kind of just deep-seated racism, hatred has to exist for that? It's interesting, the, um, I was reflecting on it, and, and it seems that, like, if, if you look at the course of history, that humanity or society always makes it socially acceptable to hate someone. It's a bit of a moving target, but it seems like there's always been an endorsement to hate someone, right? Like, you go back far enough, you should hate the African-American. Fast forward, you should hate the white person, right? You go to the right time in the right place, hate the poor person, right? You go to a different time and place, hate the rich guy, right? Like, right now, you know, Hate Russia, hate Putin, right? Like there's, it seems like community, society is always going to endorse hating someone. It's just that, you know, it evolves over time. 
it's also good to remember that if humanity treated Jesus like this, like how are, like how are they going to treat the rest of us? Crowds are fickle. Um, I, I don't remember where I heard this. It, it, it was interesting, though. They were actually talking about police dealing with mobs and, and how they have to deal with them, you know, just large groups of people. But, but the comment was made that people are smart, but mobs are dumb. Like a, a mob of people, you just have like this lowest common denominator. Like no one's really thinking clearly when, when just in that mob mentality. People are smart, but mobs are dumb, right? Crowds are fickle. If Jesus warned us that the gospel could divide families, would divide families, and that's something that some of you have seen or experienced personally, you know what I'm talking about, like how much more does it have the power to divide communities? And so for us to really wrestle with what's more important, local acceptance or a truth spoken? Right? Jesus had the acceptance, and then he spoke a truth, and then the hometown turned on him and got really, really mean. Right? And, and, and I don't want to overdwell on this, but just to acknowledge that humanity can be cruel, we can be cruel, um, and to remind us that it doesn't work to live for the acceptance of the crowd. Just doesn't work to live for the acceptance of the crowd, have to live for truth. But here's the good news in all of this, right? Because when it comes to God's grace, there are no favorites, right? No one gets to cut in line, right? It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your heritage, whatever. The gospel is equally free to all of us. Like, this story is actually great news because I'm not Jewish and I'm pretty sure none of you are, right? Like, we're part of the other group. You know, so this story actually bodes very well for us. But it just illustrates the point that the gospel is for everyone. As you invite people to church, as, as you share your spiritual journey, as you hear someone else's spiritual journey, as you talk about Jesus or explain the gospel, don't let people be intimidated by church or by the gospel. Like sometimes I don't know, people are just... I don't know. They feel intimidated for reasons they don't need to be intimidated, right? Like, this is not an exclusive club, right? Like, you want broken people in church, right? Because we all need Jesus. We're all broken people. This is for anyone who wants to join and more than enough grace to go around. Some I've said before, but it's so helpful in life. Like, when you're in a, a room and a group of people, just always assume that you have consumed more grace than anyone else in the room. Makes you very gracious in dealing with other people and their quirks, right? Like, just assume I'm the number one in grace consumption for this gathering. The, the this story of Jesus in Luke 4 is actually a remarkable story. Uh, Jesus makes it plain to the world that he's the coming Messiah, that he's here to offer reconciliation with God. But at the same time, we see the, the, the dark side of humanity, how a hometown favorite kid, how they turned on him, just because they learned that the gospel was for everyone. But the gospel is for everyone, or it, anyone who will accept it. And as you interact with the world, don't let, don't let the world be intimidated by church. Don't let them be intimidated by the gospel. There's more than enough grace for, for anyone and everyone who would receive it. Amen. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the generosity of your grace. We're so thankful for the timelessness of your truth. Lord, we're thankful for stories like these, where even where we see and are reminded that humanity can be dark and mean, and even we can be dark and mean, Lord, but just that, that your, your gospel, that your grace is for everyone. And we thank you that Jesus came to, to proclaim liberty and sight for the blind in a year of jubilee, and that we can experience that spiritually, and sometimes we get to experience it physically. Lord, this morning we are grateful and we worship you. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.